the Window, a podcast about dining in the South and beyond. I'm Robert Moss, the author of Barbecue, the History of the American Institution. And I'm Hannah Raskin, food editor at The Post and Courier. Well, today we're doing the Fish Tales edition of The Window because we have uh, several tales in, in, involving fish. We're going to talk about sort of the twisted, convoluted tale of what it, it took one Charleston restaurateur to open a fish or seafood-oriented restaurant. And then that will uh, pair us into or, or take us into a uh, little information about, uh, let's say, some new advances. There may be changing seasonality of of uh, shellfish uh, in the South. All right. Well, so we are joined today by James London of Chubby Fish, uh, as well as our food writer, Stephanie Barna, who chronicled uh, James's opening of the restaurant with his partners. So why don't we start actually with Stephanie? Um, what interested you about this story? Uh, opening a restaurant is fascinating to me because they take forever. So um, I'd been watching these guys from afar and then met them one day and they seemed amenable to sort of telling me the story. So um, when that happened, you know, there's permitting and all kinds of crazy things that go on with opening a restaurant. Right. So I think what, what really interested me about this story was that so frequently we hear from readers who cannot understand why a restaurant isn't open when it was promised to be open. And I think more and more people understand the staffing issues. But as we discovered in uh, Stephanie's reporting, there's a whole lot more. So, James, when you were at the outset of opening a restaurant, obviously you had a restaurant background already. How long did you think it would take, and did you think that was a realistic estimation? Um, going into this, you know, everyone always says, you know, take your timeline, times it by four. Right. Um, so I knew that it was going to take a long time. I felt for us we had to set that bar of, hey, we're going to be open in eight to nine months. Um, and at the end of the day, you know, it, that took us just over two years. Um you know, but which doesn't sound that bad, but our space is 1,250 square feet. So to take over two years to do a 1,250 square feet space, um, obviously there's some dragging that goes along there. Um, well, my calculation, that's about two square feet per day. <laughs> that was uh, completely yeah. right. And I mean, that's that's. You know, when you're there every day and you see the progress, it's uh, it's extremely frustrating. Um, but at the end of it, I feel like we have a space that we're really happy with and that will be uh, around there for a long time. I guess just to fast forward to the end real quick, and then we'll go back. So you are, are uh, I hesitate to ask, you are open now. Is that yes. correct? So oh, we, good. Shoot. We opened this past Friday. I knew that last I'd heard you were slated for the, t- the 23rd of June, and that happened. Was that the 23rd? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So so finally, Chubby Fish is open. Well, it might be, I guess it might be useful as we talk about what led to it to talk about what it is. So can you describe the restaurant briefly? Sure. So so we're doing a seafood concept uh, here in Charleston. Um, We try to be as docked to table as possible. Um, We also strive to be very casual. Um, So we were kind of looking for a middle-of-the-road seafood joint where you could get great local fish, um, kind of simply prepared, and um, at a decent price point. And so that's that's kind of what we do. So knowing that you were going for casual, were there times throughout those long, long, torturous two years that you felt like, oh, we could cut a corner here or cut a corner there? You know, obviously you weren't installing, like, mirrors and fountains and gold. Um, how did you decide, you know, this really needs to happen and this doesn't? Well— Let's see. Let's take a step back, and then we'll we'll talk about what 
I was doing leading up to the opening of the restaurant. And so I was I was working over at uh, Farfalle and helping them with the opening. So I was pulling, you know, 70 hours a week over there um, and then trying to get this place rolling with the contractors um, in my free time. Um, which looking back, I would not do it that way. <laughs> I would take the hit. I would um, go into go into hardcore debt and be on the ground, you know, 10, 12 hours every day. Um, but it didn't happen that way. Um, so um, long story short, uh, next time around, I would certainly be on the ground every day and I would I would probably be the general contractor next time. Oh, interesting. Okay. So so it sounds like so a lot of the holdups were more procedural than something you were trying to I mean, wasn't that it that you had such an elaborate vision architecturally? It was that No. Yeah. And we, we wanted something simple, we wanted something casual. Um, but we also went into a building that was built in eighteen ninety. We wanted to preserve the tin ceiling that was in there, um, which was a real animal um, because we had to pull that tin ceiling down, we had to refurbish it, and then we had to put it back up one tile by one tile in the exact same way that it went up at the first time. Um, and uh, so, you know, we we didn't want this big elaborate gold, gold-leafed um, building, but at the end of the day, we did want to do it right because we knew that we were going to be there 15 years. Um, now, in terms of where you are in Charleston, so you're at the corner of uh, Coming and Bogart? Coming and Bogart, okay. yes. So, which is a, an older neighborhood. So, there's a mix, I guess, of houses and then a lot of businesses are around there. Now, I think the building you took over, you said it was 1896, but didn't it used to be, it was a laundromat before? So, there was a laundromat back in the late 60s to mid 70s. And do you know what it was originally? Um, I don't know what it was originally. It was more like a shop. It's not a house. It, it, was, it, was, cer- it was certainly an old. Uh, corner store, yep. um, but I don't have any hard facts on what it was uh, initially. One of the things I thought was interesting from Stephanie's story, a, a detail that caught me, was that I think you, when you were looking for spots, you originally looked at the, the space that was Tuber's larder used to occupy, mm-hmm. which was uh, a restaurant sort of in this close by, in the same neighborhood as where you are now, but you decided not to. The advice you had was to not go into an existing restaurant space, but to build it out yourself. What was the? I know that. What was the sort of people giving that advice? What was their logic about why to do that? Well, I came in with with a pretty good vision of what I wanted for this concept, um, and a I wanted really good visibility. B I wanted a casual spot. C I wanted an open kitchen, um, kind of like a almost like a sushi feel where people can sit there and they can watch what we do, um, and I felt like that was important to ha- kind of have that interaction between guests and, um, and seeing, you know, how their, how their fish is being prepared. Two Bros Larder actually gave us a lot of those things, but every time I would drive past that spot on coming in Bogard, it would catch my eye, and I would think to myself, God, we could make that such a beautiful restaurant. So it wasn't necessarily that was like the ghost of the restaurant, yeah, that's what I thought. That's a, yeah, that's I right. thought maybe like because like, like, then everyone was oh, they're in the old yeah, Two Boroughs ex- exactly. And I think Two Boroughs has a has a great ghost. Like, yeah, right. Um, a, a really great ghost. Um, but at the end of the day, it was I just I couldn't take my eye off of that space, and and I knew the potential it had, um, 
and thought that that was that was what we were really at the end of the day looking for. So when we talk about categories of things that slowed you down, we talked about the contractor mm-hmm. and just you know and and installing the ceiling one tile by one tile. Um, I imagine permitting is also a really big issue in dealing with the city and other agencies. You want to talk yeah, that so a little we, bit? Yeah. So from the time that our plans were submitted to the city. Um, we were in review period for 16 weeks. And so that's time where you're sitting around, your contractor is sitting around because you've already signed a letter of intent with your contractor. And everybody's just kind of waiting and saying, um, hey guys, my, you know, the contractors are saying, my guys need to get on other projects. Uh, What's happening with the permitting? And, you know, we can talk to the city all we want, but at the same time, you know, they're just so backed up. Um, yeah, and, and the, uh, yeah, the city moves at the pace that the city moves. There's <laughs> right. not a whole lot you can do. Well, it's interesting. You know, I know they've talked about um, having a, a, a pay-for-play option where, you know, you give them more money and they move a little quicker, but there were some questions about, you know, whether that would be ultimately democratic. I mean, having experienced it from the inside, are there any fixes that suggest themselves to you? I would say hire, hire more, more, people. more reviewers. Yeah. Um, and I, you know, I know it's tough for them because every contractor uh, in the city will easily hire these guys out yep. um, because they have the inside knowledge. Right. Um, and so I, you know, I think it's it's going to be tough long term, especially as Charleston keeps growing. Um, I know in New York, uh, all the restaurants that I worked on up there, you. You bring in the guy and uh, and you cut him with the check and he goes down to the city and shakes the hand yep. and um, and then you have a restaurant in six months. Yep. Um, here you don't have that. Right. right, right. And I'm, I'm sure I'm sure there is something here and there that happens here, um, but we certainly don't have those connections. Right. 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 Understood. I, so I'm sure over the two years when you were telling people, look, I'm going to open this place and it's not open, it's taking forever. You must have gotten the question all the time because I know I do. Like, does Charleston need another restaurant? Right. And did you ask yourself that? And, and what answer did you give to yourself and to the people who asked it? Um, so, yes, I did ask myself that question. <laughs> um, when I was in New York and San Francisco, the one text message that I would get every time someone was coming to Charleston to visit was, hey, we're in town for the weekend. Where do we go for great seafood? Mm -hmm. And wholeheartedly recommend Ordinary um, and, you know, uh, a couple other spots uh, in Charleston. Um, At the end of the day, I felt like there was a market niche that was was missing. And... um, and that was just for that casual seafood spot, um, low key. Come in, order at a counter, grab your number, take your seat, and uh, and get great local seafood. I mean, we talk about you just mentioned the ordinary and great local seafood. I mean, there's always the rap that like you know what Marhefka catches goes to Lada automatically, and it's like so. How how did you work out getting the the product that you need? I went by Mark's dock every single day, <laughs> and shook his hand, and talked to him. Yeah. Um, you know, uh, but there's there's a lot of other great seafood purveyors in this town. At the end of the day, um, the seafood that we get in South Carolina is better than the seafood I was getting in New York, better than the seafood I was getting in San Francisco. There's more of a diversity of species here, um, and there's a ton of underutilized species um, that um, that I feel like, you know, we need to be playing with. And... Um, 
you know, at the end of the day, New York gets, you know, great striped bass and, um, you know, good clams, but there's just not the diversity that you see down here. And same thing. Same thing with San Francisco. And, and why do you think that it hasn't emerged? Like, so we know abundant, and we know wreckfish, and we know tile fish. I mean, why haven't other you know fishermen or other fish? Why have they not really made you know made the mainstream yet? Um, I I think they I think they will. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think I think you know, you know better than anybody else how slow the food revolution has taken in sure. in america and um so i mean just to see the leaps and bounds that we've taken over the past you know 15 years mm-hmm. um or with seafood over the past six or seven years mm-hmm. um 10 years whatever um you know just imagine what's going to happen over the next over the next 10 years. Yeah. It's interesting. Yeah. I will say just on that point, I got a, a, an email from a, from a chef recently who's getting out of the business and I don't think wants to talk about publicly yet, <laughs> but it's been for a long, long, long time. And one of the reasons why he's like, the fish just doesn't taste as good as it did 30 years ago because the water isn't as clean, you know, even though, I mean, there have been anti-pollution efforts. I thought that was interesting. He's like, there's only so much I can do. We don't have the fish we once did. Yeah, that's what, when you mentioned the doctor table, I was going to ask about that and, and also that filling that niche because I was writing a lot about the Mark Mahefka of Abundant Seafood, who was one of the first guys in town, not the only, but one of the first people to do really push the line caught fish and the fish that wasn't just snapper and grouper and the, and the, yep. the handful of, of fish that used to be in the menus, like, say, in the 90s. At that time, I think in Charleston, one of the reasons that took off was because chefs really pushed and restaurateurs pushed really hard to promote that fish and sort of almost hand sell it to their patrons coming in who had never heard of wreckfish. Right. And I remember people making jokes about wreckfish when it was first on menus and and other people saying, well, that's trash fish or, or whatever. And that took a lot of selling. And then, you know, have you seen, you know, what do you see these days? You mentioned other purveyors. Has that doctor table fishery, has it got any larger? Is it the same basic set of folks or, or what, what are you finding when you go out there and looking for new new sources um so in you know in terms of new sources it's it's the guys that i'm that i'm connecting with are are very mom and pop you know they have they have a boat and they go after inshore species or they have a boat and they go out to uh 60 mile reef yeah. um and that's the only reef that they fish um and so it's getting in with these guys and saying hey guys we'll basically take your entire haul. You put everything in a cooler, bring in the back door, and we'll pay you a fair price for it. And that can be that can be lionfish, that can be amberjack, that can be stingray. But yeah. these these are these are these are fish where they you know, if if we're not buying them, they're going to rip the hook out of the mouth and they're right. going to drop it back. I wish side. someone would try and sell me a stingray. You know, oh, so it's well, like, yeah, yeah. What do you do with stingray? I, I, I have to admit, I don't think I've ever eaten. Stingray. So, I mean, skate, so which we'll, I guess we'll basically, one. yeah. I mean, we'll we'll. We'll cut the wing off just like you would with a skate. Mm-hmm. We'll um, take pliers and we'll rip off the top skin and the bottom skin. Mm-hmm. And so we'll leave that wing on the bone and then just kind of roast that. Um, and we'll roast it up with a spice rub um, and then just kind of base it through with uh, with kind of a, a jalapeno, cilantro, um, salsa verde type sauce. And, uh, and then we'll put that on the plate over banana leaf and we'll serve you you know, fresh tortillas, um, all the condiments, and you can just kind of do a do your own uh, 
Stingray taco. I'm already sold. Yeah, you got it, right? <laughs> That's great. Yeah, no, but I think you're exactly right, Robert. It does take exactly what James is saying is like doing something new and doing something different. And I am surprised that we haven't seen that in the last, I mean, since the five years and I've been here, it's tilefish, ruckfish, and grouper. Yeah, tilefish, it's sort of like those grouper. got sold yeah. as the n- new generation of fish. Yeah. And now it's sort of codified in people's mind. Which is so odd because there's yeah. been so much evolution in so many other places in the play, you know, and like we keep learning about new grape varietals that are coming to our market. And we learn about like the, the attention has gotten shifted somewhere else. Like, so for a while, we were just getting yeah. really excited about barrel fish and right. all these, give me any yeah. weird fish I've never heard of, I'll order it. Right. And then all of a sudden, it shifted over to something else, like well, the, I, new, you know, the, the wine mean, and then tacos and, you know. I think a lot of the cool guys started doing oysters too. Yeah. So you did get, I mean, this huge, tremendous, you know, flowering of oysters in the last five years and different kinds and different boutiques and, you know, a lot of small operations here in South Carolina that weren't even legal five years ago. So. Maybe shellfish. Took. It definitely has the the oyster production in South Carolina right now is is ramping up, and it's you know the the just the sheer number of guys who are going into the business now, right? And just getting those farms up and running, you know, that's that's a four or five year process. Yeah, you um, think you had an art? I mean, they're like, <laughs> I, I, <laughs> so, uh, the the guy who's doing our who's doing our raw bar now, um, a guy named Mike Kalista, he was out at St. Jude um, doing the oyster program there. So he's doing his own oyster farm now, and so he's working with us at nighttime, mm-hmm. um, and then just shares his stories of the permitting that they have to go through and the and the water samples and all that stuff that they have to go through. Yeah, and um, there's so crazy. much that's out of their control. I mean, yeah. that's really and that was an area where just in the 20th century, American shellfish just got decimated by pollution and everything oh, yeah. else. So. Coming back from that, you do have a huge regulatory hurdle to get over Absolutely. to prove but that your cell fish won't be, aren't contaminated. But it does seem like it's the hip new thing to do. To like, oh, yeah, definitely. I'm an oyster man. I mean, we does. know some of these oysters, and these are yep. like, you know, they're they're the hip guys. And, <laughs> but nobody's going out, or at least I don't know. It sounds like you do, but it's like, I'm going to get a boat and just catch stingrays. You know, that doesn't seem to be happening as much, not as prominently. Well, and, and any time you go fishing <laughs> off the coast of Charleston, you're inevitably going to catch a stingray. Right. <laughs> right. The most right. annoying thing to catch ever. About. Um, <laughs> but if we can if we can turn it into something delicious, then uh, then we'll give it our best. Um, but I mean, just with the oyster thing, you know, think of think of the big oyster production areas uh, in the United States. Obviously, Massachusetts kind of takes mm-hmm. takes the candle right now, but. South Carolina, you know, five, six years from now, it's going to be pretty special. Yeah, it's. I mean, it's really cool that the government has gotten behind it, actually, although it's not easy. They're they're making the laws to make it happen. I think they realize the economic impact is yeah. to be really and good. I think I've noticed with state, state government, you know, we've had someone from uh, the tour, Parks and Tourism mm-hmm. Department on, on the show here. I think they've started to make the connection that this the natural resources, the fisheries, all that ties into tourism and really drives economic development in the state. So it's not just some, you know, weird guy who wants to right. no, with oysters. It's, it's I'm a, like an oyster is so exportable. Yeah. And so you got that guy in the bar in New York saying, where'd this come yeah. from? Charleston, and now they're, now they're go. the government's now getting behind the craft distilleries right. and pushing right. them, getting behind barbecue joints, all these things that used to be, right. the government Peripheral, used to be the enemy that or, would just yeah. shut them down. Now they're actually, yeah, now they're doing like marketing campaigns right. and promoting them, which is a quite a turn of events in, in, in just the past decade. Yeah. Because a couple more things popped up out of out of uh, Stephanie's article, um, 
parking spaces, which I never think about. Well, I think about parking spaces a lot when I'm trying to park downtown, but I never think about it in terms of opening. It looks like you you are there's a requirement to open a restaurant. You have to have six parking spaces. Well, I, I, I think so, it depends, um, and I'm not sure. It depends on either the number of seats you have mm-hmm. or the number of restaurants you have. Um, but somehow there's there's an equation there that delineates this is how many parking spaces you have to have. And we say that, that's not on street, that'd be like in your own parking lot or somehow. You have to provide that parking um, off street. Yeah, off street parking. For your guests. And it has to be something like 400 feet from your front door. Okay. But you were able to get around that? So because we were were commercial prior, Mm -hmm. um, you know, back in the 70s, we were grandfathered in uh, for those parking um, spaces that that we, that most restaurants would be required to provide. that doesn't mean that we're not going to get parking, though, yep. um, because at the end of the day, we are a neighborhood restaurant, and we do want to make sure that our neighbors do have parking. Yep. <laughs> um, so we're more than happy to provide uh, spots for our guests. Yeah, and that's actually, as a restaurant consumer who doesn't live downtown, if you live downtown and you either walk or Uber around a lot, that it's not as big of a deal, but living outside of downtown, Parking becomes a thing in those in some of those neighborhood restaurants because you'll drive around and around the block <laughs> looking for an on-street you know parking space and yeah you know, that that can sometimes influence where you go if there's it's, a, it's like know. a real city yeah yeah <laughs> 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 well Chevy Fish is a block away from Trattoria Luca yeah and that neighborhood now has an hour residential parking restriction. Oh, it's now an hour over there. Yeah. It used to be two hours, right? Yeah, it used to be two hours. Now you have to, you know, have an express dinner at Luca if you're going to park in the neighborhood. (laughs) Call ahead and order. (laughs) Spend 30 minutes finding a parking spot and race in. Well, and this is happening all the time, even outside of residential, right? Downtown, now that they've taken the meters till 10 o'clock, right? So it's like, who's going to run out of dinner at 8.30 to move the car? It's $4 now to park for two hours on the street. What's and a ticket run you? And you I don't know. It's still on my under my. <laughs> 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 I'm starting to think it might be easier just to take the ticket. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but it's so great. It just seems so counterproductive, right? Because you sit there, you park your car at yep. seven thirty. You you know you put something in the meter. Yeah. You're not going to get up from the bar at nine thirty. Nor should the city want you to. I mean, right. yeah, no. Anyhow, sorry. I don't even have a car. So what do I care? <laughs> <laughs> The one, the one like episode in your uh, story, Stephanie, that I thought was really, really kind of bizarre was when uh, you talked about like it seems like different departments don't talk to each other. Uh, can you talk about that a little bit? Absolutely. Um, I've been a chef at um, at a number of restaurants um, in other cities, you know. So I've, this is my first time going through the grind of navigating this uh, these waters of, of red tape and, you know, just the permitting and, and processes that you have to go through. Charleston Water does not connect with city of Charleston. Mm-hmm. Um, the fire department does not connect with those other two. Which you think, but... <laughs> <laughs> right, you think when they have the hose... You think the, the fire department, fire, the department <laughs> should have a relationship. They might want something coming <laughs> through it. But. The planning department does not connect with those guys. The mm-hmm. BAR does not connect with those guys. And so you have five or six departments um, that are telling you one thing and the other departments are saying, no, you can't do that. But then you need these guys to sign off saying, yes, we approve that. Um, and so you're you're going in these circles. And mm-hmm. so I would just, you know, the past... The past month, I parked myself down at 2 George Street, 
and I would just go office to office, <laughs> office to office. Yeah. And um, it played ping pong with them. Mm-hmm. And, um, and that was the only way that we could get through uh, this maze. Um, and that's what it was. It was, it was mm-hmm. a maze. Uh, and uh, On the Board of Architectural Review is appointed, right, by the mayor – Mm-hmm. And those are the people who are seem the most disconnected. And those are the ones, the ones who, are who like, want, sorry, you have to paint things certain yeah, colors. Yeah, they wanted to see foam green. Yeah. But they're the ones who uh, give you the certificate of occupancy. So they can withhold that from you at the end. And didn't you run into that with, like, just, was it the fire, the, the fire hydrant connection or the, the fire water connection? Well, so you, so you have to have the FDC sign mm-hmm. that sits above your, uh, that's another thing. We had to put fire sprinklers in. Mm-hmm. Um <laughs> that we were told initially we weren't going to have to do. Um, but uh, so above your Siamese connection on the street, uh, there's a FDC sign that all those, every building that has a fire sprinkler has. Um, they're bright red letters or they're bright brass letters. Um, so BAR said, well, you guys need to paint those seafoam green to match, <laughs> to match the trim on the, on the house that you're in. Um, and so then I went to the fire marshal and I said, uh, so Pierre wanted us to paint the seafoam green. It's cool with you. Absolutely not. <laughs> how, how are we going to see when there's fire? Um, but when so, they see it, it'll look beautiful. Right. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> it, it'll be beautiful. I really admire it. As, yeah, as, as it burns the building burns to the ground. <laughs> yeah. and, so, and so there's just this, this disconnect. And I feel like at the end of the day, what, what the city needs is they need somebody on the ground um, who – We'll just walk people through. Right. Um, and, uh, you know, there's been a couple people that I worked with at the city who were, who were tremendous um, mm-hmm. and been over backwards to really help us get through that. And to, to those guys, if you're listening, um, know from the bottom of my heart, I really appreciate that. Um, and, and you guys know who you are. Um, but there needs to be someone who that's their, that's their job right. is walk you through um, and and just tell you who you need to talk to at various stages. Right. It sounds like that's the real fix is someone interfacing all of these agencies. Totally. And, yeah. yeah. A navigator to exactly to sort of yeah. take, take you through. All right. Well, I think we should end on that high note. We yeah. fixed it. We fixed the problem. <laughs> well, we, 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 ha- we know what the fix so is. We now, know what the, the fix is. Someone just has to implement it. Yep. The, the idea is an easy part, right? Right. <laughs> so, James, let's maybe cap, recap. So, Chubby Fish now open. Chubby Fish now open. Um, where and when and how can people find out more? So we are at 252 Cumming Street, which is at the corner of Cumming and Bogard Street. Um, we are open Tuesday through Saturday. Um, we open up at 5 o'clock for right now. And, um, and then we shut down at 10 o'clock um, during the weekdays. And we go to 11 on the weekends. And do you have a website or place people can find out more information? Yes, follow us on Instagram, and we are at chubbyfish, uh, chs. And then uh, for our website, we are at chubbyfishcharleston.com. Thanks. Thanks so much for joining us. Yeah, thank you. And then congratulations on navigating <laughs> the maze and finally being open for business. Well, thank you guys. 
so, so Hannah, you mentioned while we were talking to James uh, that oysters, I think, as you said, oysters are now a year-round thing, which struck my, it would caught my attention because I thought you could only eat oysters in months with an R, but I know you just read an article explaining that's no longer the case. Right, absolutely. So here's an interesting thing. So we should start with that idea about only months with an mm-hmm. R in them. Um, so that's been outdated for some time. That kind of dates back to pre-refrigeration era when your oysters would spoil um, without a refrigerator. So um, we've been able- And so months of the R would take you April, March? After uh, April, you got to stop eating them. May has no (laughs) R. September does, but August is not. So May to August would be- Summertime, right. So you don't eat oysters in the summer is the tradition because, again, they got too hot and they just, you know, bacteria would grow. Additionally, um, there have been concern that during the summer oysters spawn. So even if Mm -hmm. there wasn't like Vibrio swimming in your warm water, which is also a a disgusting problem (laughs) that can happen, um, you have the problem that oysters and taste very good because it becomes basically just like this waterlogged sack. So it's like you've lost all the meat. Um, So there have been two advancements in recent years that have changed the situation entirely. So refrigeration changed the the, the R thing, but we still were eating primarily um, oysters from places like British Columbia or or Prince Edward Island, you know, up up, way up north. Places where the water's cold in May or August. Exactly, yes. So, and even that um, oyster bars were facing some resistance, I think, because people just swore by this only with an R. But they were safe because they were cold and they were refrigerated. There's such a it's such a handy rule that you can see why that's going to be hard to dislodge because everybody remembers. Everyone remembers, but you have to forget it. Just get it out of your mind. Learn it and forget it. So um, that was part one. Part two was that there's been the rise of boutique oystering, um, and most of these oysters are being farmed are triploid oysters, which means they do not spawn. They are. It, you know, biologically, they, they're different. They don't spawn. So, so they don't, well, maybe we'll get into this, but so if they don't spawn, are they hand like yes, they're cultivated? Hand yeah, yeah. Hand seeded. Right, 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 right. So this is, I mean, this is why we talked about um, earlier in the episode about these, you know, hip new poster mm-hmm. boys who have these oysters. I mean, that's like the thing they do is they get out there with the oyster, you know, and it's, so the oysters, unlike in the wild, we don't have to worry about a spawning season where they don't taste as good. Ah, okay. So now we have oysters all year round. Or at least we do now, thanks to the South Carolina legislature, because until two years ago or starting last summer, it, prior to that, it wasn't even legal to harvest and serve. Oh, I didn't know that. Right. So the farm. I could, just assumed that was people with that R rule stuck, but you could risk it if you wanted no, to. No, it wasn't wow. just the R rule. It was a rule for um, because they believe for food safety reasons. But the science won them over and they, you know, they said, go. Let's do it. And not just science, but economics. We talked about the, you know, economic development potential of having oysters all year round. They understood that people were coming to Charleston to eat at the ordinary. And we, in fact, quoted Mike Lotto when the law was changed saying, I got people coming to eat oysters. So let's give them South Carolina oysters instead of oysters from Massachusetts. Now, I'm not going to ever advise that anybody visits August in the – I mean, visits (laughs) Charleston in August. August. Please, come in April, come in October. It's lovely. But if you are here – Yep. Yeah, now you can have oysters. Now you can have oysters. So last year was the first year that South Carolina chefs were dealt local oysters and local peaches at the same time. 
And so it's created, I mean, it's it's really exciting. It's the idea that you can be local and seasonal and do something you've never done before. And this actually, it was actually, I was in North Carolina when the possibility sort of occurred to me. I was at the Stanley in Charlotte. And I, I, I too, you know, instinctively don't order raw oysters in the summer, not because I thought it was dangerous, but I was just like... It seems like wintry food, you know. And well, now you, I was ex- thinking the exact same thing here, yep. which is though oysters usually come on a big p- tray with lots of crushed ice, right. so they're cold. Yep. Because you got to keep oysters cold, but somehow that that doesn't seem like a that that's never been a summer thing. It's not a summer thing, and so chefs are now gradually having to find ways to transform it. So you feel like oh my gosh, it's really cold and it's perfect for summer. And the way they're doing this is by, so as a getting back to the plate I was served at the Stanley, each oyster had a little bit of strawberry gelée and a delicate flower. And it was like, <laughs> wow, all right, welcome that to That is June. something I've never seen. I've never seen flowers on oysters. I've so. never seen it before because these twain never met. Yeah. It's really kind of amazing. Um, and had it ever happened before, it would have been like, it would have been nuts because you'd be like, you're not honoring the seasons. What's wrong with you? You know, where did you get that? You know, where in Mexico did you fly that flower from? But now it's a local oyster. And this is happening all over the Carolinas. It's very cool because, again, it, it's increased their larder. So I was talking to um, Joe DeMaio at the Darling Oyster Bar, and he said he's developed, and he allowed me to taste it. We are at an event. He has a uh, tomato mignonette. Mm. It's delicious. I mean, tomatoes are acidic. They're fresh and local, and they go really well with an oyster. Yeah, that's, yeah, that, that's actually Interesting, because for so many years, and this is basically the years of the Gulf oysters being basically all you would get right. in in the South. Oysters were on the half shell. You'd get your cocktail sauce, your horseradish, your bottle of hot sauce, that little lemon, which may or may not have the little wrapper over yep. it to keep the seeds out. But that was about it. Five years ago, the ordinary places like that sort of brought mignonette into people's vocabularies when we would never, what? What's that? Right. And, but now it's like, you know, whole flavors opening up. Absolutely. And I've never actually been really into mignonettes. I sort of feel like a, a raw oyster should stand on its own. You know, it's a great oyster. I feel like otherwise it's like, you know, taking great bourbon and putting <laughs> your Long Island iced tea or something. It's like we don't need all that. You know, it's just it, it should stand it by itself. But how cool that it's like flavor combinations we've never experienced. Now, have you seen anybody doing peaches and oysters? I'm trying to figure I, out if those would even go together. I, you know, I say peaches. I don't know what you would do with a peach. It's so sweet. Peach mignonette. Peach mignonette. It's so sweet. But I will say maybe it does work because um, I talked to the chef at Rappahannock Oyster Bar. And he, I mean, it's really great because they're just <laughs> they're just like getting into this. Um, he's doing a watermelon. like a, Ooh, a watermelon yeah, oysters. It's, that so it's, might go well. It's more of like a mignonette as well. I think it's sort of a... Uh, uh, you know, it's uh, closer to a sauce. I can't remember how he described it. But yeah, so he's putting watermelon with his oysters. And, you know, he said in summertime, he's able to sell a grilled oyster. People mm-hmm. like, you know, grilling in summer, those two things make sense together. But it, this is the first time he's starting really to get some energy happening at the raw bar around South Carolina oysters. Okay, so we, maybe it's a new rule. Uh, any month without without a Z right. is safety oysters. Safety and oysters. I can remember that. Yep. And that 
is all for this edition of The Winnow. We recorded today's episode in the fully permitted, permitted podcasting studios at the Post and Courier building in downtown Charleston, South Carolina. If you enjoy listening to The Winnow, please help other listeners find us too. Just go to iTunes, SoundCloud, or wherever you download your podcasts and like us or leave a rating. The Winnow is a production of The Post and Courier and Palmetto New Media. Our producer today was the fishy J.M. Ray Parker. Our theme music is by the Bluestone Ramblers. Until next time, I'm Robert Moss. And I'm Hannah Raskin. Now get out there and eat.